I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Ken Brown, and he is a board-certified gastroenterologist and has been in practice for over 15 years with a clinical focus on inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. I was so excited to have him to discuss the gap between medical and natural science, especially in the field of gastroenterology. For over a decade, Dr. Brown has been conducting clinical research for various pharmacologic companies, which we discuss in this episode, and he has developed an all-natural and clinically proven supplement called Atrontil for those who are suffering from IBS and bloating. If you are interested in getting a discount on your first trial, you can use the code ERIN, E-R-I-N, 20 for 20% off at Atrantil, A-T-R-A-N-T-I-L dot com. In this episode, we discuss the connection between inflammation in the gut and inflammation in the brain and how it can impact your mental health. We talk about the benefits of CBD, how poor gut health can lead to autoimmune disease, the challenges when conducting research on natural interventions for digestive issues, methane-dominant bacterial overgrowth and how it's related to constipation, and so much more. So enjoy today's episode. All right. Hello, Dr. Brown. It is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Aaron, thank you so much. I'm really excited. Uh, Christian Rewired. I love that name. Thank you. I have not had a gastroenterologist on my channel at all. And it's funny because I had a discovery call this morning And I told her, I said, you know, I'm actually getting on an episode with a gastroenterologist today and he has a functional approach, which is like an amazing concept. And I said, is is there anything you want me to ask him? And she kind of like, you know, just went off on, you know, her frustration with her own experience with meeting with doctors and her and I actually both connected on that because I have my own history of having gut issues and going to my gastroenterologist and not quite getting to the resolve of the root cause as to why I wasn't feeling well. So I hope she's listening today and she can tune in and, and understand um, you know, your expertise. So that is my long-winded way of asking you, what prompted you into becoming a functional gastroenterologist? What prompted me? So what's interesting is, is that I'm really surprised that there's not a whole lot more functional gastroenterologists because you being a registered dietitian, I understand that really all health begins and ends in the gut. And we understand that that is so primary to having proper health. And I think I had all of about two hours worth of nutrition education in my actual training, which is looking back is, is almost criminal. I mean, I would change how we would do this, how we teach 
So even though it's called the Department of Gastroenterology and Nutrition, I laugh now looking back because I would have to walk in every day into that building and, and we never really taught nutrition. And when we start looking at these different diseases that I treat, you, there's a pattern to this. There's a distinct pattern that we are not becoming healthier as a society. We're becoming sicker. We're seeing more autoimmune disease. We're seeing all these issues. We're seeing more uh, chronic gut issues that then later turn into other things. So uh, when I started my practice, traditionally trained gastroenterologist, and I was very excited about research. So I um, opened up a clinical research arm of my gastroenterology practice, and I was doing clinical research, not functional research, but true pharmaceutical research. And it was really interesting to me to see how these pharmaceutical companies would design studies and almost have a predictable outcome. And they would really... Um, hone in on how things were done. And I realized that, wow, these drug reps are showing up to my office all the time. And this is what we're being fed by them and what we're told to treat our patients with, including um, drug reps that sell antidepressants showing up to a gastroenterologist office. That's an interesting concept when I look back on that and go, oh, they brought us lunch today and it was for Zoloft or whatever. That's when, uh, during that process is when I met Dr. Mark Pimentel out of Cedar sinai And he's... um, had the first person, I met him years before he even started doing this, just in his animal lab, where he was showing that irritable bowel syndrome is associated with something you're very familiar with. It can be tied to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. And his original animal models were so exciting that, you know, I stayed in touch. And then over a few years, I uh, got involved in the very first Zyfaxin study. And so I was enrolling in this Zyfaxin study. I was so eager to do this that um, it was like Johns Hopkins, Harvard, you know, Cedar sinai Mount Sinai, these just Mayo, these huge institutions. And then just one guy in Plano, I, I live in a suburb of Dallas called Plano, one guy in Plano. And I had so many patients that we were the leading enrolling site in the entire country, uh, sort of by mistake, not by mistake, because then I got this really big FDA audit because they're like, yeah, there's one guy in Plano who's enrolling more than all these academic centers. And so I had this big audit, went through that like fun process of, wow, this, you know, welcome to clinical research. And it was then that kept in touch with all these people, but we were only enrolling for the person that qualified for IBSD. And I'm like, well, really IBSC or constipation, the bloated constipated person is the one that I'm seeing more of, certainly at least in my area, just, and they're so frustrated, um, desperate actually. And just like your client, I was seeing all these people that were coming for second opinions, third opinions already. And that's when the whole concept of SIBO being brought over to causing constipation through a different process, through the archaea species. Uh, I know that you had a podcast where you covered SIBO. That's when I really started to go, wait a minute. I took a big step back and figured out that there are actual natural compounds that can do amazing things. And then it comes back to, okay, well, what's the underlying cause? Why are we giving antidepressants to somebody that has irritable bowel syndrome? Think back, what is irritable bowel syndrome? In my boards and in my society, it's anybody that has a abdominal discomfort, pain, change in bowel habits lasting more than three months. And that is the biggest trash can term you've ever heard. And we're labeling people that have either diarrhea or constipation the same thing. I mean, it just didn't make any sense at all. And that's what started it and ultimately started looking at all these other natural ways to help people. And I'm just having more success 
trying not to prescribe everything. And so it's been, it's been a very slow evolving thing over the last 10 years that, that I now feel like what I'm going to try and do is bring more research to the natural world. That's my real goal now is to take it a step further and continue that passion in research, but realize that we can do it with diet changes. Let's look at different things. Let's look at lifestyle. Let's look at all these things that you're aware of from a functional aspect. Like how in the world is your gut going to get better if you don't sleep? Your stress levels through the roof. Have you considered, you know, breath work, meditation? And people look at me, they don't look at me like that anymore. But certainly all my partners at one time were like, man, he is off the deep end. And now it's like people are catching up. And I'm like, cool. All right. Wow. Okay. So that's, uh, that's, that's amazing. You brought up like a hundred different points there that I want to make sure that I kind of follow up on. And the first one is the mental health aspect of it, right? Because you mentioned that SSRIs, for instance, are one of the most commonly prescribed drugs that people are often handed if they're presenting with digestive issues. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because, you know, someone might listening might think, you know, I've talked about mental health and its role with the gut, but, you know, why are, why are physicians prescribing SSRIs if somebody is constipated or bloated? So the first thing, if you actually look, let's look at the data. So a lot of studies have been published regarding irritable bowel syndrome and SSRIs. What's interesting is that the IBS does not actually improve. The person just seems to care less about it. If you look at all the data and when we start prescribing these kind of medications to people, I think it's real. It's a very loose science. It's just hoping that one of these things is going to work and let's hope that you feel better. Uh, and the side effects are not worse than what the, what's actually going on. You know that there's a brain gut connection. The brain gut connection is extremely important. So if you have inflammation in your gut, this will send through the great highway, the vagus nerve all the way up, you can actually create inflammation in your brain. It was shown just recently, this is a great example about how um, we can show that when you have inflammation and it can trigger inflammation in the brain, we're now seeing that all these people with dementia actually started like 20 years before with gastrointestinal issues when they look Mm. back on this. So it's way more than just, oh, you have an irritable bowel, let's pat you on the head, good news. You just have an irritable bowel. That's not the philosophy that I have. I think, oh no, you've got the symptoms that we could describe as irritable bowel, but this could be a whole lot of other things. And we know that if we don't protect your gut now, then I'm scared that you're going to end up with either an autoimmune disease or some sort of neurologic issue. Because the writing's on the wall. Inflammation leads to disease inflammation in the gut can cause disease in the brain. And unfortunately, you probably know way better than I do, but the way that we uh, process foods now, using things like high fructose corn syrup or using polyunsaturated fatty acids, we know that those, let's just take high fructose corn syrup, for instance. So an article came out recently that actually showed that uh, people with high fructose corn syrup um, that have a diet high in that, which would be basically anything that you open almost, and that's because of a lot of legislative things that took place in the 60s, that we're now seeing increased rates of ADHD, bipolar, anxiety, 
and all of that. Then what was really cool is this particular study said, well, why is that? And what they found is since high fructose corn syrup has to be metabolized to the liver first, your brain is actually starving for the natural fuel that it wants, which is glucose. And it goes into this foraging mode, meaning it starts ramping itself up. Too much activity. That too much activity then spills over and becomes neuroinflammation. And now you've got these people that seem like they're crazy coming into a gastroenterologist's office, that the knee jerk would be, oh, let me put you on an SSRI because your anxiety's through the roof. But back it up and go, let's, let's see if we can decrease the intestinal inflammation and see if that anxiety starts settling down through diet and then lifestyle and some, I don't know if you've ever heard of anything called like CBD or something, you know, cannabidiol. That's another way to decrease the neuroinflammation. I'm very passionate about that as well. So I think that I saw that you're a big, that you're a huge proponent of that. Um, I think you should be the first person. I always tell my patients because they look at me a little funny. Texas has been a late adopter to the whole um, CBD cannabis type market. And I always think it's funny because it's so complex. The more and more that I read about that, the endocannabinoid system, that you're going to have an endocannabinologist someday that you will go visit as a specialist. I hope, you know, I hope so. And I was actually just on a, uh, you know, a webinar recently and was learning about the, the research that is, you know, it's still so very new just as the research with the gut microbiome is, but it's exciting that we're seeing that now they're looking at, you know, developing drugs for CB1 receptors to treat functional GI disorders. And I really hope that it just continues to grow because the, the benefits in my practice that I've seen, you know, not only just directly for gut health issues or inflammation, but in general, just for anxiety and sleep and stress and you know, really just providing a really great alternative. And this is something that obviously you're passionate about, providing an alternative medicine option that doesn't come with awful side effects from typical medications that you're going to get at your doctor's office. 100%. One of the fears that I do have is a little bit different than you is that I don't like it when the pharmaceutical industry tries to come in and tries to develop a molecule that they think they can do better than mother nature. That's another reason why I'm passionate about being a functional uh, gastroenterologist because it's almost like mother nature does it better any way you cut it. Every time that we've tried to intervene, and I can give tons of examples because they have to be able to patent the molecule. And so they say, oh, here's a great example. Melatonin, we know, helps with sleep. We know that we produce it naturally. We know that you can uh, supplement with it to help um, with sleep. So a drug company a few years ago came out with a isolated portion of the melatonin molecule where they're like, oh, this is the part that binds to the brain and this is going to work better. And then they just flooded the market and they came into my office and they're like, oh, this is the prescription dose of melatonin. And the side effect profile was insane. Nausea and vomiting was like, like a crazy number, like 20%, 30%. Horrible. They did not anticipate that really you the whole molecule Otherwise, you trigger more nausea and vomiting than you do sleep. And it took them aftermarket to realize that when they tried to, you know, capture the sleep market with that. That's just one example. And I could give another example of people trying to do that with CBD, where they try and isolate. Mm -hmm. If you read the studies on that outside of the children, they tried to use it on inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis in my field. The dropout rate was insane. It did the exact same thing. The side effects were so bad that people uh, didn't, you know, they weren't able to take it. That's why I think that when I, 
look at different supplements and how they work and look at the science behind it, it just requires a lot of digging and it requires a lot of research and there's nobody's making a whole lot of money on it. So these articles are just buried under millions of articles that just kind of get shoved out of the way, but it's there. It's, yeah. um, it's some pretty exciting stuff that's, we can start treating the gut brain access. I think that ultimately I, I always refer to dementia because memories are super important. What is the, what is the purpose of life if you don't remember your life when you're older with your kids and grandchildren and great grandchildren, hopefully and all these other things. And the epidemic of dementia is just, it's through the roof. And we're going to end up in a situation where if we don't do something early on, then you may end up with dementia. And that's kind of my goal at this stage of my career is to protect the brain through the gut. I love that. I love that. And regarding the epidialects, which if people who aren't familiar who are listening, which is the FDA approved, um, it's basically CBD isolate for people, mostly for people who are struggling with epilepsy. And I don't remember specifically, I just tried to look it up, but I remember it also being really hard to find the full ingredients list on their website. But I'm pretty sure it had like artificial sweeteners in it or artificial colors in it. And I'm just like, you know, you're taking something that's medicinal and you're actually ruining the benefits of it by A, isolating it. And you're missing all the full benefits of like a full spectrum product, for instance. And, and then, yeah, you're adding ingredients to it that are not supportive of any goals, especially through gut health. But I digress on that topic. And I really appreciate your you know, view on, on brain health because I think people often think, okay, well, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, these are just natural progressions of life. This is just something that happens as we get older. I can't tell you how many times I hear a human being say, like when they forget something, they'll say, oh, you know, just getting old, you know, just that's what's getting. It's like, you don't have to accept that. You know, you don't have to accept that that's actually Alzheimer's, dementia. Those are things that we can actually look to the gut and there's tons of research coming out that shows that there is a strong connection between the alterations in gut microbiota and Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's and MS and Lou Gehrig's disease. I mean, the list goes on. So I love that that is your focus. The, um, there's a whole lot of things that when I was in medical school and training during my fellowship that you would say a term and you would just be laughed at. One of them being leaky gut. So leaky gut, if you say that to a gastroenterologist, even most of my colleagues, it's, you know, it, it, I imagine somebody with their head in the sand. They're just, they're just, that, that's, that's a BS term. It doesn't exist. So I just say intestinal permeability because it turns out there's tremendous data to show that once you have intestinal permeability, this sets off a chain reaction. So if you believe in leaky gut, which you should, because there's a lot of science on it, um, I saw this great article where they took uh, human uh, intestinal tissue and then they soaked it in bacterial inflammatory markers, lipopolysaccharides, that created inflammation. So the typical inflammatory cytokines, not to get too sciencey, but you know, the TNF alphas and the interleukins and things like that. And what they showed is that after soaking it for a certain period of time, then they were able to have um, a test where they could see if molecules could fall through that tissue. And it did. And so they showed, oh, look, with a little bit of inflammatory mediators and lipopolysaccharides, then those lipopolysaccharides could get through. And then you could totally see how the body would react to this. 
because it's an invader, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing these small proteins that come through and then the body has to react to it. Same group then took the blood-brain barrier, which is a semi-permeable semi barrier, much like our intestinal barrier, where it selectively allows things into the brain and out of the brain. They did the exact same thing and created an equal amount of leakage in the brain. Mm. So that whole concept of leaky gut leads to leaky brain. And that is ultimately where at least somebody like me and you have to try and intervene in the gut so that you don't have a leaky brain. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that term, I think, I want to say just a year ago is when people started being like, you know, not coming down on me for it. At first it was like, you know, they'd, they'd laugh same as you, you know, my, you know, some people in the field would laugh at me and be like, okay, leaky gut. Yeah. That's a thing you'd see like memes on social media, people making fun of it. And now as the research is coming out, people are like kind of just, you know, tucking their heads back and thinking, okay, yeah, this is actually real. And this actually is a concern and it's a major concern. And you mentioned autoimmune conditions. This is something that I am seeing incredibly rising rates for. And I'd love for you to, you know, kind of touch on maybe how that could be, you know, interconnected to the gut health because, you know, my clients are usually in their, you know, late 20s, 30s, but I have clients in their 40s and 50s who have, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or, you know, Hashimoto's is very common among my clients. And, you know, like you said, you look back at their history and gut issues, chronic constipation, you know, not ever having normal bowel movements. So, so can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So autoimmune issues, when we, when we look at what's going on, we have certain, uh, when I say that our society is not becoming healthier, we may be living longer, but, you know, we want healthy years. We don't just want, you know, longevity. We want to make sure that we have our health. And so as this generation, in fact, the millennial generation is the first generation to have more in my field, more colon cancer than their parents, which mm. is why we're screening for colonoscopy younger and younger, move from age 50 down to 45. And we continue to realize that, oh my goodness, we're seeing so much of this. Why is it? And it all comes down to the gut, the diet, all these other things. What I tell my patients is it's not uncommon that I will see somebody and they'll, um, they'll be like, yeah, I've really been... I was fine and then something happened and they give me kind of the SIBO history kind of talk where they were normal. Then they got a bad gut infection. They went traveling and then just never been right since. And then two years ago, um, they were diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And then, oh my gosh, I've got this Renaud's going on and doctor thinks I might have fibromyalgia versus RA. And it's this systemic inflammation that's going on. What I tell my patients is if you can imagine this, um, whether you have a poor diet, uh, a very highly refined diet with lots of those molecules like glyphosates and things like that that we know that are very, very harsh in the uh, digestive tract, and, or you have an infection, or if you're gluten sensitive, you have these cells that scan the outside world. Your gut is exposed to the outside world. So we have this very incredible um, immune system within the immune system. So your gut has its own enteric immune system. It has to reach up in a cell like a dendrite, which is a cell that has to say, okay, is this friend or foe? And then it hands it to another cell and goes, what do we do with this? And if that cell says, oh, this is something we have to get rid of, 
let's mobilize the troops. Then they mobilize the troops, which ultimately leads to um, white blood cells and antibodies and really complex immune process. And then it goes and it tries to kill what it thinks is an invader. But if that invader is being taken in every single day as part of your diet, like you're opening a package and you're eating a candy bar, they're like, oh, there he is again. We got to go out and get him. We got to go out and get him. Or if you have bacterial overgrowth where you have a lot of bacteria which are in the small bowel, it does the same thing. It doesn't, it's just like, why is this guy still here? Well, when you rev up the immune system and then all of a sudden you've got this hyper um, excited immune system, then it can turn and go, oh, that doesn't look right either. Come on, guys, let's go over here. And that's what a lot of people, that's what a lot of uh, immunologists and allergists believe begins the whole process of autoimmunity. I mean, if you think about it, when we talk about the immune system, it's so complex, but there's allergists, there's immunologists, there's infectious disease doctors, there's rheumatologists, and nobody ever talks about a gastroenterologist, but I almost feel like we should be at the, at the tip of the spear, and these guys should be catching the things that, that we didn't fix, because I think it starts in the gut. A hundred percent. And right now, even just hearing you talk about it, I'm like, okay, why aren't there more people in these, these specialties that are focusing on gut health? And I, I really do believe that. And it makes me sad, but also hopeful that, you know, as the research starts to come out and we're seeing all these connections that, you know, hopefully they'll recognize that and see the importance of it. So if, um, Shout out to, I call her my secret weapon. She was, I was telling you before we started this, we just did a podcast last week on the motility system and her name is Angie Cook. And her and I share the same Mendeley account. And Mendeley, are you familiar with what Mendeley is? Mendeley is just a repository where you can put journals okay. and then you can share it amongst your team. Oh, so you that. have all these journals. Then you can search them and you can do these different things. Okay. I think it is so funny whenever I talk to one of my colleagues, especially people that, I mean, I get, I think in my field, um, well, I shouldn't say that. I would say that a lot of specialists, cardiologists, gastroenterologists, you know, we just, it's, the job is so daunting in its own that you don't really take a few seconds to turn around and look. And so like when I got into CBD, and then, uh, you know, my patients would be on CBD. They would go to their doctor. The doctor would be like, you need to get off that right away. There's no science on that. I got, okay. And then when I'm trying to give uh, polyphenols, like our product, Atron Teal, to people because it, of the benefits of polyphenols, oh, there's no science on that. Mm. Okay. So now I'm like, oh, I heard, I'll just email. I'm like, I heard that you felt there's no science. And like, here's a few hundred articles over the last four years that I have sent to your email account in PDF form. Tell me, you know, it's like you didn't take the time to look. This is, it's out there. Somebody, some brilliant PhD in either in a lab, in vitro, in vivo did this, but it wasn't shocking enough and it wasn't funded enough to make it into what would be considered JAMA or the New England Journal of Medicine or one of these that people say, oh, this is the most prestigious. I'm During this whole COVID period, I think it's poked so many holes in the way that we look at research, the way that we do research. There is, it's a research bubble. Um, the NIH will fund certain studies and they fund, a, you know, there's a lot of studies. If there's a lot more on the back end to be made, 
when JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine published an article, I don't remember which one it was, similar articles about how hydroxychloroquine was actually killing more people. And then they found out that it was all based off of a database owned by one company and they wouldn't release the data. And then it turned out that it wasn't quite true. And so in other words, it was bad. It was bad science. Then they retracted it. And then they did a whole op-ed piece on how these journals are really leaned on heavily by the industry to publish what large pharmaceutical companies would like to get published. So even when you say that's not a good journal, that's not a, you know, no, there's no such thing. I mean, it's, you know, you just have to get out there and look, you be a judge, whether the study was a good study, whether it was a good protocol. And there's a lot of science on this. It's just who, who's going to take the time to do it. And are mm-hmm. you passionate enough to stand up there and, and say, no, no, forget you. This is, this is real. And I've got the science to back it. Yeah. I honestly spend hours on end each week, just looking at research studies and it sometimes feels incredibly unproductive, but at the end of the day, I feel like I'm so lucky to be able to do that because I really do think you're right. And there's one example that comes to mind. I think it was the American um, journal of gastroenterology this year came out and basically made a statement about probiotics, not offering any benefit. And I just thought, oh my gosh, like how could you make a statement like this? I've been looking at research for 10 plus years with regards to probiotics and gut health. And there's, there's plenty of research to show that, that probiotics are beneficial. And so you see a headline like that come out. And then I feel like, you know, as practitioners or dietitians or, you know, whatever you are in the healthcare field saying, okay, well, I don't feel confident in recommending probiotics in my supplements because the research says that there's no benefit. And it's, it's this idea that I personally take on of myself. Yes, I am very evidence-based. I freaking love science. I think it's amazing. But, and this doesn't even align with that statement. It's not even, you know, doesn't even apply to that. But evidence-based, not evidence-limited, right? So, so there's, there's these natural things out there that, like you said, are, are providing such benefit, whether, whether there's research out there or not. And if we choose to either ignore it altogether or ignore the research that actually is there, then we're doing an incredible disservice to our clients by not providing them with these alternative options that could really help them. Whenever anybody comes to me and they, I'm very open-minded about anything at this point, because I mean, you can, I'm trying to be dogmatic in today's really fast changing environment, certainly COVID has shown us that we can just we can just turn around and be like, nope, don't do that. Okay, do that again. Okay, come back. And everyone has to be very open. If somebody comes and they bring me something and it's whatever, I'm like, okay, well, what what were you told? Well, I was told XYZ. Okay, well, let's look at the physiology on this. Let's start with basic physiology. This is the mechanism that we know. This is how this particular aspect of your health works. This supplement states that it can do this, how does it do it? Well, theoretically, a great example, motility, theoretically, it can increase acetylcholine. Okay, well, theoretically, that would make sense. If you increase acetylcholine, then we know that that is the precursor for um, to increase motility. So yeah, even though I have not seen a whole lot of research on that, if it can actually do that, then theoretically, it can increase your motility. So let's take a step back. Let's look at this. Let's see if an in vitro study, meaning outside of the body, in a lab, they can actually show that, then I'm like, huh, that 
probably makes sense. Somebody has not found the money to do the research on this or how they're going to get it passed. So one of the things that other people need to understand that why you see a lot of research coming out of other countries is because our, um, our FDA, if you have an idea, let's say, okay, Aaron figures out that um, supplement extract XYZ appears to do amazing things in her clients. She wants to find out in a randomized way if this is actually going to work, but it's never been done before like that. That means that you would have to submit to an investigational review board, IRB, which is very standard, but you're using something that's never been used before in that setting. You have to actually then file for an investigational new drug, IND. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't, I don't want to be a drug. We've run into this before multiple times where I'm like, I'll like call scientists in South America and be like, just met this incredible person. You guys got to sit there and they're like on it. And next thing I know, they've got a study going. They're like, oh, we've already enrolled 100 people. And I'm like, that's fantastic. We try it here and it's really limited because, uh, because of large um, nationalized institutions which are supposed to protect us. The FDA is there to make sure that we don't hurt and things. But then they're also, they make it so cumbersome and impossible for a real, for unique research to happen. You can do different things like that. So when I look at my colleagues and they're like, oh, no, no, there's no research on it. I get a little, I feel like I've earned the scars to fight back. Be like, I've been on the other side. I've seen mm. the, I've seen, the, I've, I played the pharmaceutical game also. I mean, I would love to find out. I would love to find out all kinds of, I mean, come on, CBD, like real research CBD, because all the stuff that we have available is, um, I mean, real research in randomized, proper dosing, proper CBD, make sure that, you know, all these things. Because you're looking at a lot of data where people um, are looking at things that didn't distinguish, between, you know, what blend of THC, what blend of CBD, you know, does this have other cannabinoids? Oh, don't even get me started on the terpene profile and all this other stuff. Like there's too many variables. You can't just yeah. say, oh, that, that didn't, that didn't help. So yeah. I'm going down a really long, <laughs> probably, you didn't think this would turn into some sort of weird quasi political rant about why there's not research on some of these things, but it's, no, this uh, is fantastic. Actually, it's fantastic because, uh, you know, I think that any, any listener can benefit from this because whether you have digestive issues, whether you're just a human being on the street, who's a consumer, I mean, this is important stuff to know, and it's an important stuff to start thinking actively about, you know, when we think about evidence-based and what that means and where the limitations are. So I don't, I, I appreciate the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it, it does, um, it does stifle quite a bit of research. And there's, uh, I mean, it's very exciting to get an email from Angie on a daily basis. Look at these 20 articles that were just published. They're in preprint. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is insane. This stuff is so good. I don't have enough time to read all of it and to look at it. Like the high fructose corn syrup article. I mean, that was, that was incredible. Okay, now you've given me a mechanism of how a, high, a diet high in that can lead to brain inflammation actually lead to it on a mitochondrial level. That's great stuff. Mm. And that's all research that can be done here, but it's not going to be looked at. Um, you're not going to be able to do a study on, for instance, you know, a unique uh, 
combination of natural substances that you want to see if it works on a certain disease because once you go towards a disease, then you're going towards a drug. So you can never go for a disease. It has to be vague. It's got to be real, uh, non-distinct and everything. And I'm going through that process right now because we just submitted to have another um, more of a case control uh, study that we that we just submitted to the uh, Journal of Functional Foods, actually. Okay. And it's funny because we're going through the same rigors as if, I mean, I've been published in the New England Journal a couple times and I feel like I get beat up just as bad by some of these what others would consider lower tier journals but mm. they have editors they've got scientists they mm. they they take pride in their job they they critique it and make you back up everything you say so i'm kind of a, i'm fingers crossed that we get published we get accepted and get published so my fingers are crossing for you absolutely so before we jump into Autrantil, which is, you know, I want to talk about the research that you've done with the supplement that you've created and, and how amazing it's been for people who have digestive issues. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about, this is kind of random, but just kind of the difference between bloating and distension. And, um, you know, I think some people, especially when they're looking at whether they have a SIBO diagnosis or whether they have an IBS diagnosis, um, you know, some people will say like, I feel bloated or like, I feel like I look three months pregnant. You know, what, what would you say is the distinguishing difference between the two? How would you describe that to a listener? And then when would you recommend that they go in and get either a breath test or a colonoscopy, um, based on their symptoms? Hmm. Okay. That's a very loaded question. So Sorry. <laughs> I'm well, I only say this because I'm a little bit different because since I'm a private practice gastroenterologist and I have fairly high volume, and by the time that I people tend to be funneled down to me, they've been through the traditional route, then they kind of do a functional medicine tour, and then they find me. So they show up with like, this is what my gastroenterologist gave me, and it's like six different antidepressants, and then this is the bucket of supplements that these functional medicine doctors and these are my 500 tests that cost me $10,000. And so by the time they come to me, I've, I'm like, look, we're just going to get rid of all of this. Talk to me. Everything, everything's in the history. Now, that's very different than some of the other, like, for instance, we'll just call them SIBO experts. I mean, you know, Allison Seebecker, Mark Pimentel, uh, Michael Ruscio, these are all really very intelligent people that are very specialized in this kind of thing great people and they they have the liberty of getting to them and getting the test which means breath test and then you know satish rao out of atlanta will say no 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 it has to be a culture and then you've got the mayo clinic that says no 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 no. you got to do gene sequencing so we don't have a gold standard is what i'm getting at <laughs> yeah. and you know now there's uh there's the brand new test the trio breath test which does look for hydrogen sulfide hydrogen and methane and i think i've got 10 pending right now because I really want to see what that looks like. But everything's in the history. Everything's in the history to me. Yeah. So I try not to do more tests. I try not to, I try to listen for the alarm symptoms. Um, we do have to, and this goes out to all your listeners. I sometimes say, okay, you have these symptoms, you have abdominal pain. We cannot completely rule out celiac disease or Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. I would like to get a baseline endoscopy and colonoscopy on you. And I'm shocked at how many 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds, I find really big polyps in it. Mm. And so now my threshold is I'm going to use you coming in here to tell me about your abdominal bloating and pain 
let's make sure you don't. Cause I've found all of those diseases in patients that say, Oh yeah, I heard you on a podcast. I, I have SIBO. And you get in there and you're like, you've got Crohn's bad Crohn's. We need to shift gears here and move. But I'm finding all these people in their thirties. And I'm like this polyp, which had low grade dysplasia, it was turning into cancer. If you would have waited till you're 50, that's, I mean, no, you, you wouldn't have made it till you're 15. So we're seeing a lot of that. So when you say, when do you do a colonoscopy? I have a really low threshold to do it because I'm seeing, you know, if I'll, I'm seeing a lot of disease prevention that I can do with that. Breath testing, I reserve the breath testing. And I'm, once again, I'm different than a lot of the other experts. I reserve the breath testing for when people don't get better over whatever regimen we choose to do. Because mm-hmm. then I'm like, I mean, are we missing something? And then do you order any breath testing on any of your clients? I'm the same. I'm, I'm literally the same as you where we will start with dietary and lifestyle intervention. And if we don't see any sort of resolve, then I will order SIBO breath testing, but, but continue. Well, I think it's funny because nobody's writing about this, which is, I think the SIBO breath testing is a little bit more intriguing if you've got um, very high time changes. Mm. So I've had some people, people that they spike really high, really early. And I've treated them with everything. And I'm like, wait a minute, do you have a duodenal sweep bacterial overgrowth? And that's really, and all, everything we're giving you doesn't really start becoming available to help treat that until downstream. And so that helps a little bit with that. And then we, you know, look at the methangin bloom, or do you really just have a high methane level that's going on? So I mean, I have clients who have been treated for SIBO and they don't feel, you know, any better. And, you know, well, then I have clients who have been treated for, haven't been treated for SIBO. We make dietary changes. Apparently they have SIBO based on a breath test and they incorporate lifestyle factors. They, you know, control their diet, their stress levels, and they feel a hundred percent better. And so, you know, some practitioners would say, so then what's the need to further intervene there? If the person feels great, they're having normal bowel movements. I I think there's just so many nuances with breath testing that it's, it's not, on, not only overwhelming for the client, but even the practitioner when it's, you know, you think, okay, so at what point do you, do you do a test or not do a test based on the client's symptoms? I'm going with, how do you feel? What are your bowel movements like? You know, those are, those are the most important variables to me. Exactly. And I told, I could not agree with you more. And if we get back to the American College of Gastroenterology, they, the AGA, the, um, came out with a, I guess it was two years ago, where they did kind of the same thing with the probiotics, where they evaluated breath tests and they basically said, you know, the data shows that there's extreme heterogeneity in between the breath tests and we cannot recommend nor discredit it. But so it just shows that when you look at the research, if it was in a much more controlled setting, it probably made a difference. There's probably so many variables that, that make it. Anyway, so breath testing aside, the history is the most important thing. And if I'm going down the path of SIBO, it's the person was normal, an event happened, and they've just felt bad since then. Mm-hmm. And then my next question is that, do you bloat after you eat? Oh, yeah. And if they grab their belly and shake their belly, I'm like, ah, that's not bloating. Let's talk about that. So that is, you know, whatever term you want to use that's water retention that's the you know just feeling full that's all these other things but when somebody goes cauliflower pizza that you've eaten or the cauliflower rice that you've eaten (laughs) exactly exactly and so when i have somebody that goes no check this out this is me when i wake up 
everybody has a phone now and there's always, I've seen more pictures. pictures of people in their bathroom mirrors. They're like, this is me when I wake up and then it's one over. And this is me after dinner. And you're just like, whoa, same outfit. And so those, that's the real bloated. That's the, I'm three, four months pregnant. I, when I eat a carbohydrate meal, it's, um, it really, you know, does that. And so that's when I really start thinking, okay, well now let's look at this. Let's look at your history. Let's talk about this. Then you start getting into the, okay, the motility aspect. Is this a food intolerance? The same things that you're, I'm sure, doing with all of your clients. Mm-hmm. The ones that really scare me are the, yeah, I was doing that. I got, you know, I'm fine with it. I just kind of figured that was my new normal. And then these other things start showing up. And then you're like, and I've just got anxiety and I've got brain fog and I can't. And it's, and then when I ask them, I'm like, do you ever feel like you have brain fog? They'll sit up. They'll be like, yeah. And I'm like, do you ever like have more fatigue? They're like, yeah. I'm like anxiety? Like, yeah. And once I start asking the brain questions, they're like, oh my gosh, how, why are you asking that? And I'm like, because we now, now you are classic, normal. This happened. You put up with the gut issues, but now it's the brain issues, which we're really worried about. So now we're into crisis mode where I'm like, we got to figure this whole process out. Then it turns into my next, my next thing is let's, let's look at your diet. What's going on here? And the fact that you walked in with the, I don't think you have these in in Boston, but you know, Whataburger is a text burger chain, you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that you walked in with, come on, man. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, um, I really appreciate that. And I think that it's something that we need to talk more about. And, and I, I think you're, you're, you're not, and we are not trying to create this sense of like, you know, fear in people, or, you know, you should be panicking if you have any sort of brain fog or fatigue. No, but if you're, if you don't feel well, period, you know, it's not, let's not just, I think the bottom line is let's not just treat the symptom. Let's look at the root cause and let's get back to, you know, where all of this could be coming from versus, you know, here's an antidepressant or here's birth control for your hormonal imbalance, or here's, you know, ibuprofen for your pain. And, and we're not, and, and then we look at the side effects of every single one of those medications and it's further, further dysbiosis and harm on the gut health. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, the, when you said we pull everything out, even if it's from, you know, a functional nutritionist or functional practitioner, let's get all of that out of there, please. Like, let's just kind of start clean, start with a clean slate. I, I do this with every one of my clients. Well, I'm taking a digestive bitters. I'm taking BT and HCL for stomach acid. I'm taking herbals to detox my liver. And I'm like, oh my gosh, your body is already stressed. Let's, let's start from scratch. Yeah. And I'm, don't want to make it sound like that if somebody's listening and they're like, oh my gosh, I, I do all that. So for the record, um, when I look back on myself, I kind of the, um, I did the same thing, but in a little different way where I was that guy that would walk into the sports nutrition place and the steroided out salesperson was like, you need this and you need this. I'm like, really? This is going to make me look like you, huh? Okay. And I would just do it. Same. No, <laughs> 100%. Science. And I was like, yeah, this guy looked like he knew what he was doing. So it's, it happens, you know, we all, we oh. all want the person in front of us to feel better. And we all have the belief, but we're also all eligible for maybe being you walk into a health food store, you're going to leave with a big bag of health food stuff. 
<laughs> and an empty wallet. And, <laughs> and I, I actually did a post, uh, I think it was last year. I went through my box of supplements that I had gathered over the years. And it was, I mean, it was massive. It was, it was all of the supplements that I just mentioned plus more because I was under the impression that, you know, those would fix my issues. And, and I really also do want to make sure that I, I make a point to, to agree with you on the fact that the people that are giving you these supplements or these medications are not intending to harm you. It is truly just, you know, what do you do to a loved one when they come to you crying or when they come to you in pain? Like you just want to help them. And so the intentions most often are for good, but it's a matter of, you know, getting to the root cause. I'm so glad you said that because I didn't even realize I am not trying to bash in any way the pharmaceutical industry or the traditional medicine or anything like that because there's really good drugs out there and drug companies, the big hurdle that they have. To put this in perspective, when we did the first Zyfaxin study and they were going to get their approval, then and I was, was going to fly to Arizona and I was going to be one of the original speakers and all this other stuff. And they hired a sales force and they people like quit other jobs and like moved to take over the sales territory. At the 11th hour, the FDA went, you know what? We're going to need more data. So that was already $20 million invested in the first study. Then they had to delay the whole thing for another three years and do another study where they had to have different uh, endpoints. I think that was $30 million. And so you're like, oh my gosh, you're, you know, you're, this is just one of those drugs. And there's many of these drugs that spend 50 million and they never get off the ground. They never get the approval. They never go where they need to go. The side effect profile, all this other stuff. So everyone does have the best intention. It's not really like there's, you know, some weird conspiracy or anything, but I think everyone is human and deep, deep down just wants to help their fellow man or woman and, um, yeah, you said it best where your family member comes, you're going to be like, oh yeah, here, you know, take this, yeah. take that, take that. Unfortunately, I think that, um, the, th- that's been done with antibiotics also. And I think that that has completely disrupted our microbiome. But. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Could not agree more. I, can I, can I just like make you talk about it for a second, just very briefly, I guess in, in a short few sentences before we start into your supplement, cause I want to hear more about your research and, um, just selfishly. Yeah. So remember that anytime you take an antibiotic, it is a systemic antibiotic. The beauty of a a product like Zyfaxin or Neomycin, we believe it is poorly absorbed. So it is just working in, in a certain area of the bowel. Um, You have a, all right. You see a pregnant woman and you go, she's eating for two. You, really should realize that we're all eating for 100 trillion. If we feed our microbiome what it needs, it will, if you have a diverse enough microbiome, it will make postbiotics. And that's, have you, are you familiar with that term? Yes. So we're now seeing this whole science of postbiotics, which mm-hmm. is where Uh, Your microbiome, if it's diverse enough, will break down the different products that you give it, so undigestible products, and it will produce fuel, like short-chain fatty acids, butyrate for the colon. It will produce different things like urolithin A, which get rid of sick and dying cells, in other words, cancer and things like that. 
your microbiome, if you treat it right, will treat you right. And one of the biggest things that we're doing that has saved so many lives, I mean, we developed antibiotics. That's awesome. It's, it's amazing. But every time you take an antibiotic, you are taking a blowtorch to your microbiome also. And it's, we don't really know, there's no way to control what bacteria is going to survive that, what bacteria is going to die. And so every time you do that, you decrease the diversity. And the more you decrease the diversity, the less benefit you get from that. So I try so hard to get away from using antibiotics in my practice. It's, it, it's impossible not to for some of the diseases that I treat, but I really try to think really hard. Like when you say that your loved one, when my son comes up to me, he's got a sore throat. My first reaction is not, let's put you on a Z pack or take you to the, you know, I'm like, yeah, well, it's probably a virus. Let's just ride this one out. So <laughs> such like, who do you think you're such like a hard or something? Yeah. Let's just ride this one out. And he's like, oh. <laughs> so no, I, I, I respect that so much. And I think that if I were a listener, I would want to know, okay, so let's say you have to go on an antibiotic. Um, what would your protocol be afterwards? My protocol is usually putting them on a high dose. I mean, obviously step one is try to avoid it as best as you can, but step two is putting them on a high dose quality, um, antibiotic, I mean, um, probiotic after they finish the, the round of the antibiotic that they are on. Do you have a particular protocol or anything that you would advise to a client? Yeah, a little bit. So first of all, um, when, when I have this microbial diversity talk, remember, I treat a lot of SIBO people. So my preference in probiotics is, so I'll digress really quick on probiotics. I remember um, I was in a meeting and there is a doctor named Dr. Eamon Quigley. He's currently in Houston. He's from Ireland. He is the godfather of probiotics. He's been writing about probiotics. He's like the first guy to realize that probiotics were there like 50 years ago. And he's got this great, accent and he's just you know this, this love accent professor emeritus that's just been impassioned his entire career and i saw him at a meeting and i was like i was like dr quigley hey let me bounce something off you real quick um you know what's new with the probiotics and he just sat there and he just looks at me and he goes they do such amazing things in a petri dish we just can't get enough people to have that same reaction to make it clinically relevant or statistically relevant in a long-term study, which is why the American College of Gastroenterology said, oh, they're, they're basically equivalent to placebo. But mm-hmm. um, you know as well as I do that um, sometimes it's a home run on somebody. And so since I treat a lot of SIBO and the Cedars-Sinai original protocol was to try and avoid probiotics while you're treating mm-hmm. because you can theoretically add more fuel to the fire there was a study that came out of Atlanta that they took SIBO breath test, SIBO culture positive people, um, and they gave them probiotics. And what they showed is an increase in lactic acid. Mm. And those that were on the probiotics suffered more anxiety and more mental issues. And they were able to show that the increase in lactic acid crossed the blood brain barrier became an inflammasome and resulted in this. And so my um, go-to probiotic of choice just based on what I just said, which is sometimes it can make it worse and I want to increase the diversity. Um, The research on spore-based biotics Mm. um, 
actually, we know that it probably makes it to where I want it to go, which is the colon. Mm -hmm. A lot of probiotics may do local benefit in the small bowel, but it may not make it all the way to the colon. So spore-based biotics. So I'm kind of a fan of spore-based biotics, piggybacking it with the polyphenols in Atrantil, because we know those polyphenols basically go through undigested, Mm -hmm. and then it is fuel for the spore-based biotics. So when somebody has... um, a, a big round of antibiotics. That's usually what I try to do. And that's not, it's just based on the fact that I, uh, I've seen, it, everybody's tried 20 probiotics by the time they've come to see me. Sure. And so I'm like, I don't want to be the guy that says, well, have you tried this Let's one? Let's try this one. Yeah. 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 I'll usually, I have a specific, like the spore based one. I have a general one that is not anything like it's just been a good quality. The one developed by Mark Pimentel, like, just I have a few in my kind of toolbox that if I have exhausted like one or two and they're not responding, then the last thing I want to do is like you just said, like, oh, let's try this one. You know, let's let's try food sources. Let's try other things. So, OK, that's I appreciate you going down that that Which, probiotic talk. Yeah. And then one other thing um, when we have these really restricted diets, mm-hmm. because people are like, man, I feel so I, you know, I do not bloat. If I stay in my FODMAP diet, I do not oh bloat gosh. if I stay on my elemental diet. Well, other than developing some micronutrient deficiencies, which has been shown if you stay in that for a long time, you really self-select your microbial diversity because what ends up happening is over time, the bacteria that we're kind of hoping for that avocado or whatever, you know, whatever's on the FODMAP, um, they, they do not proliferate. And so the environment, they're like, well, I don't want to hang out here because I'm not getting what I want. And same thing goes with bad food. It has been shown that when you eat a lot of refined sugars and eat a lot of things like that, that your bacteria can send signals to your brain and be like, yo, how about getting, a, how about getting us that donut again? Because mm. that was really good. Mm-hmm. And then you start proliferating certain things. So the diet, um, a well-rounded diet with lots of different types of fibers, different types of polyphenols, it's probably better for you in the long run than these really restricted diets to get you through. So I use the FODMAP diet and things like that short term. Yeah. And then I really try and say, hey, you really got, we really got to try to feed your microbiome. Oh, good. I appreciate that because I did a whole episode on the FODMAP diet because, uh, you know, I have a lot of issues. I have clients who come to me after being on it for two years and I'm like, you <laughs> avoided FODMAPs for two. And of course, you know, with little nuances, but you know, those, I really do believe that they are meant to be short term, you know, not only from a microbial diversity standpoint, but also a mental health and quality of life standpoint. So thank you for bringing that up. So Entron Teal is, I would love for you to kind of just talk through what it is and, um, you know, maybe just give a background on like briefly the research. You mentioned the polyphenols and benefits from it, but just give the listeners kind of an idea of what it is and how it works. So, uh, the the years are starting to roll up now. So nine years or so ago when I said I was doing the research in Zyfaxa and that's when I was, the the quick and dirty of it is, is I'm like, man, but the bloated constipated person, it's not getting better. And I was, you know, communicating with Dr. Pimentel and he was so far ahead of the curve. He's like, yeah, we figured out that those people are producing methane and it looks like that's the culprit. And it's because this uh, other kingdom of a bacteria like called the Archaeobacter, which is, just you know this ancient um kingdom that is a methanogen that produces it and i'm looking at this and then it was 
Uh, my research manager, Brandy, came in and she was a former, um, uh, she's a former speechwriter for a senator in Iowa um, or whatever, doing something in the Senate in Iowa. And they were trying to mandate that farmers put different food products in the cattle feed to decrease the amount of methane production being produced by the cattle for the greenhouse. So I spent the next two years just sifting through all this animal data and then figured out that if you combine three polyphenols, which are ultimately we've learned since then are extremely good for you for a lot of different reasons, that um, it'll actually get rid of the archaea producing methane. And so based on that, then a bunch of fun stories about how we acquired the first, you know, Cabracho Colorado. Cabracho Colorado is a supplement that nobody's ever heard of because it's never been put in a supplement before. But you take it all the time because if you've ever had beer or wine, tea, things like that, it's, it's a tannin that's, that's there. So, but this particular tannin is both stable in acid and in base, and so it wasn't going to be absorbed. So it was very interesting to try and find these polyphenols where I specifically said I want it to work in the small bowel, and it doesn't get absorbed. So it worked out perfect. So we did a randomized placebo-controlled trial in one group, um, one study that went really well. We had like 88% efficacy. And then I did another study, both these were published, that was what I call the worst of the worst, and they had to have failed everything, including mm -hmm. cyclaxanilomycin, herbal antibiotics, uh, all the typical Linzess, uh, the, the other drugs. And we had very similar results. And so then I realized, wow, we're really onto something here. And that's what started with the science. And then the rest of it is, let's talk about what it's like to try and do a startup business while you're still a doctor and trying to do it. That's a whole separate podcast. And oh my it's gosh. still going on. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I think it's so true that the people, I mean, the people that I see, I don't often, I've seen like a handful of people that come to me because they have diarrhea um, it's more often than not, it's the people that have constipation. Cause like you mentioned, I just did a meme of, you know, the, um, the sound of music girl where she's like, you know, up in the fields, it's like, nobody wants to be constipated and bloated. It is the worst feeling in the world. And so, you know, having some sort of, you know, treatment for that, I think is, is incredibly important because those people are not getting, you know, resolved. Oh, so I don't want to make your listeners more scared than they should already be. But I'm figuring something out that is really blowing my mind. Mm. So I have a lot. Uh, I shouldn't say I have a lot. Um, I have a handful of very, uh, very beautiful um, women that are very body conscious. They work out. They, you know, they clearly take health very, very important and everything. And then they kind of come in with this story of the whole SIBO thing. And then it leads to severe constipation. And then we kind of fix the bloating and everything's better. And I'm seeing a trend here, and this is, I don't know what, I mean, we got to figure this out a little bit, but they'll stand up and they'll be like, look, and I'll lay them down and I'll palpate and percuss. And I'm like, you've, you've, I, can, I can hear the tympani, meaning the air, this is your intestines. Yeah. And then you stand up and then the tympani has gone from up top yeah. and their bellies protrude. So I've been getting these x-rays on laying and standing and their colon in the hepatic and splenic flexure just falls into their pelvis. Mm. And I'm like, what is going on here? So I have a colorectal surgeon friend that uh, I'm running this by him. I'm like, look, his, his name's Dr. Macaluso. He's an incredible surgeon. And I'm like, look, this is what's going on. And he goes, well, 
that makes sense. Are they all tall, slender women? And I'm like, they are. And they all kind of have this history of either dance or something. So they were naturally flexible. Mm. And I'm like, I wonder if they're on the variation of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome where they've got ligamentous laxity. And he goes, he goes, Brown, when, when we do surgery, he's like, we, we can mobilize colon a lot. And sometimes when you have to take a, um, like if they have a cancer in the rectum and, or or better yet, if they take the whole colon out and then they have to build what's called an ilioanal pouch. Mm -hmm. He said that frequently, if you have like a shorter, stockier person, it, it doesn't reach. Mm. And so what we do is we give them an elastomy and we have them come back in six months and then it reaches because gravity pulls it down. Wow. So I'm like, dude, I've got this whole series of people that I think because of constipation, the weight is slowly stretching their ligaments so that the ligaments are not holding. And I've got x-rays that show it's here and then you stand up and it's here. So wow. now what we're dealing with is a pelvic cage situation where the intestines fall in. Mm. So I'm trying to convince him. I'm like, we have to develop a surgical technique where you can just go back up and tack it up there because it's, it's very distressing. And some of, these, some of these clients that I'm talking about are like fitness models. Mm. It's like a big deal for them to, to go on stage and, and you know, have that kind of affect their career. So that's... That's something that I'm just sort of starting to see the trend where I don't know where that's going to go, but it's another reason why I don't want people just to live with their digestive issues. No, and I love that because you're you're thinking outside of the box and most people will just accept, you know, whether you're a practitioner and you if you don't have an answer for it, let's call it IBS or let's just call it pelvic floor dysfunction versus let's take an x-ray. I love that you've taken that initiative to go and look further and then not just sit there and think, oh, that's pretty cool. But you've now reached out to a colleague and are trying to work as a team to better the lives of other people. So that's, that's what we should be doing. And that's the onus is also on your listeners and the clients. Be open. I mean, do that. I mean, the only reason why I even started going there is they're like, look, look, lay down, flat, stand up, boom. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wait a minute. Yeah. And so it was, you know, the more history you give, it all comes down. The better historian you are, the better you're arming your physician or your registered dietitian with information that they can use. Yeah. And this would be a great reason for everybody to learn a little bit about anatomy and physiology, about how the body works, because then you can start to think the way that we think as practitioners of, you know, rather than just kind of assuming that, you know, the body is separate entities, when you understand what's happening in the body to some extent, even on a basic knowledge, you know, you can start to, you know, provide yourself even with more ideas and present your, you know, whoever you're working with to get to the resolve to your issues with those items. I love that also, except that it seems like whenever you Google anything, it ends up with you dying. Not Google. I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking, you're, you're in your undergrad, you're studying kinesiology. You should take an anatomy and physiology you class. You can put in big toe pain in Google and it will eventually say you're dying of cancer. Yeah, so I yep. have people that run into my office are like, I Googled this, I'm dying. I'm like, oh. I am part of so many different Facebook groups. Like you'd think I was like a crazy weird stalker. I'm part of like a Peloton group. I'm part of like a woman in their thirties group solely so that I can see people say, 
I'm constipated. What should I do? And then you hear people, I love this detox tea. I've, I've heard that that's because you have this. And I, I slide right in there and I'm like, I'm a registered dietitian. This is not, do not go to Google. Do not take that tea, you know, and uh, there's so much information out there. And it is just, it is, oh. it's laughable, but you also worry because you're like, these people could actually harm themselves by taking this as true information and in science. Well, it's, it's shocking because, I mean, the power of suggestion is a big deal. And your neighbor or your friend saying it or a Facebook person or a social media saying it. I've had tons of people come in and they're like, well, my neighbor told me to take this. I'm like, that right there is a multi-level marketing product. And that's yeah, your neighbor told yeah. you to take it. <laughs> Did you read the label? They you get, get 20% commission for that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, I got a kick out of that. So, a lot of detox teas. I've had a lot of people show up, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to be psychic. Uh, look for an ingredient called senna. In yeah. The, and they're like, yep. yes. I'm like, yeah, it's a laxative. <laughs> but I felt so much better when I took it. It's like, oh my gosh, look, there's green tea extract in it. So, you're taking a stimulant. That's wonderful. I'm sure you got more energy when you started taking it. <laughs> you want to hear a funny story? This is yeah. and this just happened yesterday. I would almost yeah. show you the pictures of it. It's really funny. In fact, yeah, I should just please. show you right now because yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do this. So I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. Okay. And um, they're great kids. And we're, we're really big into tennis and stuff. And so yesterday, <laughs> yesterday I found, um, I, cleaned a, I cleaned my closet that I haven't cleaned in forever. And I found a gift that had been given to me, which was a, a traditional... Um, high-grade matcha tea ceremonial kit where you have the bamboo and you whisk it and all this stuff. Yeah. And so my kids yesterday, we decided to um, play Japanese music, and that's my daughter (laughs) (laughs) trying that. And then my son comes down, and he's he's playing the role. Oh, my gosh, he's even in costume. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So he came down with, here's what's funny. I totally forgot that there's caffeine in matcha tea. My kids have never had caffeine. He stands up and he's just like, well, I don't know. I, I didn't like the taste of it, but man, I'm, I'm really feeling like I could go study right now. And I went, oh, oh shoot. You, you just basically had a shot of espresso. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That is too funny. That I, was yesterday. So when you said green tea, I'm like, oh yeah. You're like, yeah. oh my gosh. How are your kids now? Is everybody okay at oh, home? They were perfect. It was all good. He slept great. It was because I was okay. early. But I just thought it was funny because I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. That's got caffeine. Yeah, well, now people can see real-life experience of what caffeine can do. You feel like you can do anything. So if it's hidden in a supplement, a protein powder, a tea, chances are you're going to feel, you know, some sort of benefit. Yeah, unless you're me, where you've you've pushed the boundaries of your caffeine receptors to the point where they're just numb. (laughs) Yeah, or you're you're (laughs) like you. There's plenty of people like that. I can drink a cup of coffee and go to bed. Yeah, there's... There's those types of crazy people out there. Yeah. Thank you for calling me crazy. <laughs> crazy is an endearing term, actually, in my practice. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, so I guess the last question would just be, you know, like, so who is your supplement for? What is, because I know it's like you've got peppermint in there, so it's a natural antispasmodic. I love using peppermint oil in my practice. But then so you've also... That's- Okay. I just want to say the oil, we specifically use the leaf okay. because what we're going for is the polyphenol effect. So just a little, it's the ground up leaf. I think that part of the problem is by taking the oil out, which does work as an antispasmodic. Um, we, we, we wanted the leaf in there. So it's different than other peppermint 
products because okay. we have a lot of people that will try and like, I mean, like a lot of things, they'll try and look at the label and say, well, I'll just make this on my own. They'll get peppermint oil and then that, that'll mm. cause heartburn in a lot of people and they've already got, you know, the bloating and the heartburn and stuff going on. And so it's got peppermint. It has horse chestnut, mm. which is both a combination of polyphenols and saponin. And what the horse chestnut does, basically the three work together like this. Imagine that the peppermint comes in and it calms the area down, which is what we're going for, the antispasmodic effect, which allows the other two ingredients to work a little bit better. Then the quebracho, the very large workhorse of this, it has all these what are called hydroxyl bonds on the outside. And so it works like a hydrogen sink. So basically, the bloating that you're experiencing starts absorbing it. But it's one of the few products that has a natural defense against archaeobacter. So what it does is it weakens the wall of the archaeobacter. And then the horse chestnut has antimicrobial activity also. But it shuts off the enzyme that produces the methane. So it's like a one, two, three step process. That's and then cool. I just, I basically summed up 10 years worth of work into that little sentence. And, that must be and so sad. How long it took us to figure it out. Yeah, I was going to say, that must be so sad for you. Like, uh, you know, this is, this is not even begin to touch surface of the amount that goes into this, which is in, incredible and amazing. I'm sure that was. Yeah. yeah, but it's so cool that we're still evolving. And so when you say, who's it for? Yeah, if you're the, if you've got digestive issues, for sure. Then we realize I'm meeting with scientists all over the world. And then we realize that, like I said, they don't get absorbed. This will increase your microbial diversity. So the polyphenols, you said, right? I mean, we have research that shows that polyphenols can increase diversity. Exactly. And what's wild is um, there's a PhD in Spain who published an article that I just went, this is nuts. And she did, she took essentially our molecules and she put them through a digestive tract, an in vitro digestive tract, where she showed the enzymes that break it down. And then she put um, a diverse microbiome in there, or basically fermented it with okay. probiotics. And then she ran a gas chromatography on it. And what she showed is this, like, I just was like, this is so beautiful, that the large quebracho molecule actually kicks off all these smaller phenolic, phenolic compounds that you read about, like quercetin, like rutin, like urolithin A, all these things that I'm like, oh my gosh, this gets back to the original thing and Mother Nature does it better. Mm. And this, is, this was not the intent when I made this. I wanted to go after a very specific audience and now I'm like, oh, this is amazing. So now you don't have to go out and you know, with her research and purchase all these little, like I'm going to take green tea. Oh, ECGC or EGCG. I always get it backwards. Green tea extract gets kicked off. These are just molecules. Hmm. We say that it's green tea extract, but it was a molecule that was discovered in green tea that then they isolate. Hmm. But if you have a diverse microbiome, your body will, will find these phenolic compounds. I think of it like a large Lego piece when it gets to the, your microbiome then bacteria are like, oh, don't mind if I do. And they take off that piece, that piece, that piece, that piece, that piece. Some gets absorbed, some doesn't. Some is for the local um, signaling that's happening. It's a whole new world of science. Mm -hmm. So as we sit there and try and figure out the microbiome, everybody's looking at poop. But really, what we're really starting to look at now is the metabolites that these bacteria are doing. Mm -hmm. So analyzing, sending your poop off to Viome or one of these other companies. It's, great. It's, it's a good start. It's a good start to try and get the data, but we don't know what to do with it quite yet. Mm. That's exciting, really though. 
Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, yeah. it's so cool. Yeah. yeah, people don't think about metabolites. They always think like, oh, let's test this and let's test estrogen or like, well, what about the metabolite of estrogen? Like, what if you're, you know, what are you actually metabolizing here? What's the downstream effect versus, you know, we can't stop at the, those initial values. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I take it every day for the anti-aging, anti-inflammatory effect um, that we have more science than we know what to even do with on these molecules. And so it's, it's, you get to the point where it's a little bit like, wow, this is, did I develop this for SIBO? And is this evolving into something more? Is this evolving into this period? Are we helping people's immune system? Are we doing different things? Because it's, it's all part of the process of, you know, overall, it's all connected. It's all connected. It's all connected. And connected. that's, that's the reality. If you're helping the gut, you're helping everything. So we, we know that yeah, for, sure. for sure. Wow. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to give it a try. I'm very honest about my opinion and, you know, would, would love to recommend this to clients and we'll be sure to share uh, my code at the, you know, footing of the episode that I eventually launch. <laughs> and, um, you know, definitely I'm happy to share my own personal experience, but I'm just really excited for that you were able to come on and, you know, share your research and your passion and, and really highlight the gap for, you know, practitioners in the field. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it and the work that you're doing and even just the ideas that you're putting out into the field to help continue to further, you know, the, the better health of individuals in general. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was an honor coming on here. Do you have one more question for me? I do. So what is your favorite childhood memory with food? I was, when you emailed me that question, immediately <clears throat> one thought came up. And that I, um, I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. My father's family's from Montana. We did not have um, a whole lot of money. In fact, we were pretty much not uh, struggled financially. And we would drive to Montana to see his family. We were at a restaurant. It was a steakhouse. And there was a lot of cousins and uncles and aunts. And my dad picked up the tab mm-hmm. without you know, telling anybody. And, he, um, and he, so he paid for the meal. And I remember driving back with him and I asked him, I'm like, why did you do that? I mean, why didn't you make everybody, you know, I'm seven. I'm like, why didn't you make everybody do that? And he said, because I would rather buy memories than buy things. Mm. And that's an opportunity to share family, friends around food. Mm. That is a memory that I carry with me since I've been seven. And I, I live that. Like, I don't buy things. I am willing to drop a crazy amount of money if there's going to be a good story behind it. <laughs> I love that. You know, every, you know, everybody that's come on, I love everybody's responses. But I would say that has by far got to be my favorite because it resonates with me. And, you know, just the idea of that food can really bring people together. It's so much more than just nutrients. We know that nutrients are important, but it's, it's memories, it's love, it's tradition. And, you know, that's, that's something you can never, never pay for. But I, yeah, I totally agree. And if there's one other thing about food and I'm, I'm, if this pandemic has taught uh, me something, it's, there is a lot of value in cooking your own food at home. Yeah, you can make so my daughter. Oh, my gosh, she's 14. And so she gets on these YouTube channels where, where there's these 
um, ce- not, not even celebrity. They're like other 14 year olds that have like a million followers and they cook things. And I'll come home and she'll be like making what I would consider something that we would never, I would never go out and buy. But I'm like, well, you're making it. I know what's in it. So yeah. we, it's okay. We're going to make some cookies today. That's cool. Like, yeah. you know, if you want to bake an apple pie, we can have the apple pie, but as long as you make it, go through the mm-hmm. effort to do it. And so yeah. That's, oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I think it's so special. Like people don't, they, I think you, they underestimate the value of when you are the one creating the food and putting the ingredients in and it, it makes such a huge difference, not only for the experience of it, but also the quality of the food that you're eating. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, and it all, it all comes back to that. This is why I guess, oh my gosh, I just came full circle. I didn't even realize it. So yeah. when I said in the very beginning that my mission is to protect the brain, mm. it, it all comes back to that statement when my dad said he would rather spend money on memories than on things. Mm. And that, that's why memories are so important. Mm. And that's why you and I have to protect people's brains through their gut. Yeah. I, as someone who is a big mental health advocate, you know, I lost my father to his battle with mental illness and I think that that is a huge propeller for why I went into the field that I went into is protecting people's brains. I've always said, if you, if you lose that, I mean, that's, that's everything. Right. And, and so that's probably why I do what I do. So I I'm glad that you do that for that reason. And I'm grateful for the work that you do and that you were able to come on here. Well, equally uh, for you, I love everything that you're doing. Um, much success to your podcast, to your practice. And um, I loved coming on. This is a great, great yeah. podcast. Thank you. We covered you. a lot of territory. I know, I know. Can you direct people where to find you if they want to kind of um, reach out or if they if you're taking clients, like what yeah, that would look like? So, so as a gastroenterologist, if you've got gastrointestinal issues, um, kennethbrownmd.com. Okay. That's, that's my practice site. Uh, I'm big fan of, of a few supplements that we have on our, um, on my other site, which is kbmdhealth.com, kenbrownmdhealth.com. And I do have a podcast also called the Gut Check Project, Gut Check Project. And there's, um, we cover a lot of ground also on that stuff. So that's why I, I like, I like joining people who are like-minded and extremely intelligent and willing to talk about a lot of different things, just like you're doing. So I appreciate that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and um, look forward to staying in touch and definitely referring patients, hopefully to the supplement, but also to your resource, your, your podcast and your page. All of those are incredible. And I'm just grateful that I was able to find you. Uh, the only thing I'm disappointed is I was truly expecting a very thick Boston accent. I'm so sorry. People say that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, I, I grew up outside of Boston. So, so if someone were to say, you know, did you grow up in Boston? I'd have to say no, because it's very, people get very upset about that. You cannot say (laughs) you grew up in Boston unless you grew up in like Dorchester or, you know, the, the real hearty places of Boston. So I, you know, I, I have to be honest and I could make it up and lie. I do a really good accent. I do, but I, I, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's that's okay. That's my only. That's my only little. You know, little little oh, pushback on the podcast. You know, maybe maybe every segment should have just a little bit of that accent. All right, I'll I'll, I'll make that note and let my intern know. <laughs> that's awesome. Thanks again, Aaron. Yeah, you're welcome, Doctor Brown. Thanks for going over time. I appreciate it.
didn't even feel like it. (laughs) All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me to improve your gut health and get to the root cause of why you aren't reaching your health goals, please visit nutritionrewired.com. You can also find my book, Rewire Your Gut, which is an excellent resource for anybody who's looking to improve their health. I've had such great feedback from this book, from people noting improved digestion, cleared up skin conditions, reduced cravings, and overall just more success in reaching their health goals. There is a meal plan in the back of the book as a sample to guide you of how to use it throughout the week and incorporate some of these delicious recipes. And I also just launched my recent book, Rewire Your Sweet Tooth, which is a collection of healthy, delectable dessert recipes that are perfect for pretty much any time, but especially the holiday season. And both books are now available as a PDF and a physical printout on my website, nutritionrewired.com, and would make a fantastic gift for your loved ones. So thanks for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.